0: We're working our way through the book of Romans. This is part eight. The letter that changed the world. And I changed the title um, this and the next couple Sundays. Understanding how justification works and how it doesn't. We're up to Romans chapter three, verse 21. So tonight, Romans three, 21 to 30. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's a period there. Just stop there for a second and notice the way he points out. Is that in your notes, that whole text? Okay. The the way he points out how um, the law and the prophets had borne witness to it and the it referred to is you see it in the middle of verse 22 the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ it's striking the law and the prophets had always been talking about Jesus the Ten Commandments had always pointed the need for Jesus ever since Moses received them on the mountain the prophets had all been writing about Jesus It's what Jesus said walking along the road to Emmaus and he opened the scriptures and he pointed out how everything had been talking about him. It's just this universal testimony of the New Testament that if you only have eyes to see it and they didn't, not fully, the Old Testament has always been pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ. All right. For there is no distinction. Now verse 23. No distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's been taking three chapters to prove that. Jew and Gentile. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. That's an interesting phrase. He put him in the front, put him in the spotlight, pushed him out there, put forward. As a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show, and notice what it doesn't say. It's quite surprising. This was to show God's love? No. This was to show God's righteousness. Striking, isn't it? Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And you think, Paul, did you, have you never read about, you know, Adam and Eve in the garden, and Noah and the flood, and Sodom and Gomorrah, and passed over sins? Are you kidding me? What's that mean? We're going to talk about that. Because his, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. Twenty six. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. The present time is the new covenant with the coming of Jesus. So that he might be just and the justifier. So notice the order. The first effect of the cross, it relates first to God and secondly to us. That he might be just, it's not about you at all, and the justifier. That relates to us being justified. The justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what has become of our boasting? It's excluded. There's no room for boasting. By what kind of law? By a law of works? Well, no, that wouldn't work, because if you can fulfill the law and do good works, then there's grounds for boasting. By a law of works? No. By the law of faith, the faith that receives it as a gift. You can't boast in that. You give me a present, I can't boast. It magnifies your generosity, but there's nothing for me to boast about. 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Later on in Romans, you're going to see that when Paul says apart from the works of the law, he doesn't mean you can live lawlessly something else he's going to talk about. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or or is he the God? Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. And then look at this. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. God only has one way of saving people, always has had only one way of saving people, and that's not going to change right to when Jesus comes again. There will always only be one way of people being saved. No one's ever going to be saved by becoming an Orthodox Jew or going to Jerusalem or Mecca or anything else. Only way people will ever be saved ever is through faith in Jesus Christ. There, that's, that's the bones of the text. Paul has taken the better part of three chapters, right up to chapter 3, verse 20, and he's been working, laboring, to show the universal guilt of mankind before God. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, all guilty, all without excuse. And, And he means, like three chapters, Paul means for us to really have that sink in it's not the way the gospel has come to be presented in much of today's church, where Jesus is just the one who meets your needs, whatever needs you have. But Paul always feels it's essential to labor over the, the first half of the gospel before you get to the second half. And the first half of the gospel is the whole human race. The people with messed up lives and the people who appear to have unblemished lives. The whole human race stands in desperate need, equally needy. We're all guilty, we're all without excuse, and not one of us can produce his or her own deliverance before God. And Paul takes three chapters over and over and over. He wants me to know and he wants you to know the people you witness to. He wants them to know My problem runs a lot deeper than just the need for moral reform or moral resolve. I need more than pious instruction on how to become a better person. I need more than a new ideology or a new philosophy. Uh, it's not going to save me just being gluten-free or a vegan. I got, I got, I got deeper issues than those things, A better moral code isn't going to help. So the depth of our situation, in terms of its desperateness, it lies in the fact that that we are in deep eternal trouble with a real God who is actually there and is actually a lot holier than people think. He introduced it way back in 118. The wrath of God is revealed. from You like the idea of the wrath of God? You don't like the idea of the wrath of God. It makes no difference. It's revealed from heaven. You don't concoct this. It's a given. Like it? Don't like it? God doesn't care. He just reveals himself. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. That's a big problem for us. It's striking the way he words it in this text, you know. Let me shock you by saying something. My biggest problem isn't just sin. You say, wait a minute, Pastor Dunn, that is the problem. Well, it is, it is. But sin wouldn't be a problem if God weren't absolutely just, right? If God were prepared to just look the other way, then my sin may mess up my circumstances for 70 or 80 years, but it wouldn't be that big a deal. The reason sin is a problem for us, an eternally serious problem, isn't just sin is really bad, it's that God is absolutely just. That's the problem we have. If God were Santa, that would be different. But he's God. He's God. So, so our biggest problem isn't that there is war and there should be peace. It isn't that we're cruel and we should be kind. It isn't that we hate and we should be more loving. Our problem is God is holy and just and we are not. He repeats this in other places in the New Testament. Ephesians 1, 2 and... Th- chapter 2, rather, verses 1, 2 and 3... He says, and and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit. That now is at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived, he writes to the church, he says that you too. You used to live in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, if, if, if that was a period instead of a comma, it would be a mess, but it wouldn't be as serious a problem. But the problem is, and we're by nature children of wrath. Oh, there's the problem. It's the wrath of God against sin. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice, all of mankind. We have no bigger problem. We have no bigger issue, and we can do nothing to fix this. I can't fix this. It's important to take note of the way Paul keeps driving our minds back down into this problem. He just, he just can't, like a dog with a stick, he just, he just can't let this go. Because, because he knows the gospel can't be properly appreciated until our plight is taken fully into account. You ever want to get a great old book? I was reading it today, this evening in my office. If you ever want to get a great old book, you won't get it new anywhere, I don't think. Go on Amazon or wherever you go and look for a book called The Plight of Man and the Power of God by D. Martin, M-A-R-T-Y-N hyphen Lloyd-Jones. Light of man, the power of God. And he deals with this as as brilliantly as anyone as I've ever seen. All right, there's the problem. I've taken a bit of time talking about it. Now Paul's gonna he's gonna proceed to set forth God's solution, the plan of salvation for this lost planet. There's three parts. We're only going to do one part tonight. <clears throat> We're going to study the announcement of justification. That's in three. 21 to 20. Next Sunday night, we're going to look at justification illustrated. 331 to 425. And in three weeks, we're going to look at the privileges of justification. 5, 1 to 21. Okay, so tonight, justification announced point number one. The declaration of the dawning of God's deliverance for mankind. The two most important words in the text tonight come in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now... And you think, okay, someone's about to flip a light on. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, so there's going to be a righteousness provided. The law and the prophets bear witness to it, they pointed to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. He's going to say it's for Jew, it's for Gentile, it's for everybody. Paul intends us, he intends his readers, he intends that we mark a total contrast between the the opening words of verse 21, if you put your finger under them, and the closing words of verse 20. Okay, Verse 20 spells out the problem. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But there's the problem. Having the law, the instruction, your Bible, having all the instruction, it, it's, it's, it's not going to help. It's just going to make you aware that you're a sinner. This is, this is mankind's problem with the law of God. You can't find salvation in it. The law, says Paul, far from bringing deliverance from sin, it brings an awareness of sin. Remember Paul said, I wouldn't even know what coveting was until I saw it in the commandment. And then, oh, that got exposed in my heart. That's me. But then there's this huge shift in 21. The problem at the end of 20. The solution, the beginning of 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested. And here's the good words. Apart from the law. Though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the delivering work That God's going to bring about on our behalf. He's going to do it without the law. It's going to be apart from the law. So 20 describes our peril with the law. 21 reveals God's deliverance apart from the law. But there's something else in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So though God is delivering mankind through faith, apart from the law, he's not abandoning his original plan. He's not reversing himself. It's not like he's changing his mind. And so Paul makes it clear that this delivering act of God, apart from the law, it was always God's plan. The law and the prophets pointed to it. It was right there in the law itself, especially the sacrificial law of the Old Testament. So the law and the prophets both gave advance notice of God's great redeeming work in Christ. We should have known this was coming, studying Romans, because if you think back, in the very first verse of the first chapter, right at the beginning of the book, here's what Paul said. Let me read it to you. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, Set apart for the gospel of God, and then Paul says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. See the same idea. It was always God's plan. Okay, point number two. Paul keeps returning to the first half of the gospel. That's my term. Those words aren't in the text. So right after announcing the big change in 21, look, look what he goes back to in 22 and 23. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I find it amazing, amazing to me that right after introducing the subject of salvation, now the righteousness of God has been revealed through faith. Right after doing that, he can't help but go back to the the first half of the gospel. He's just taken three chapters, shattering any hope of self-deliverance, and he goes right back into it again. Here's what I take from that. Devotion to Jesus needs fuel. Fuel. Integrity and passion in worship needs fuel. Clinging to Christ in a culture pulling you in the opposite direction takes fuel. The fuel is the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit doesn't work just like the way you put batteries in a flashlight. What the Holy Spirit uses to fuel my, those three things that I just talked about is Paul wants me to know deeply, deeply, how dependent I am on God's grace. And he, and he wants that to just bubble up with thankfulness, humility, love, devotion. And so Paul reminds me tonight and you tonight the only proper starting place in being justified is the understanding, the admission of a problem with no religious solution whatsoever. All have sinned. When you stop thinking rightly about sin, you will stop appreciating the gospel properly. That, that's what he's saying. Point number three. Why redemption through Christ is so essential 24. You see it, 324, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This follows naturally from Paul's conclusion, all have sinned, all continually sin, all fall short, present tense, of God's required glory. So because of this, nothing short of redemption, 24, is going to help on the basis of mankind's rejection of the general revelation, we took two weeks talking about that, of God in nature and in conscience, and our failure to live up to the moral pronouncements that we impose on others, and our disobedience to the revelation of God's will and His commandments, all of those things, on the basis of all those failures, there's no moral guide, there's no teaching that can save us. We need redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, 24, freely by his grace. Freely by his grace. Say that with me. Freely by his grace. But just because justification is free to us, it wasn't simple and it wasn't free for the triune God. There is a sense, and I say this now in response to some very prominent contemporary writers and speakers in good-sized churches who think that the wrath of God is an archaic concept because God just loves and God just forgives because it's His nature. And what I want to say to you tonight is there's a sense in which God never can just forgive sin. He can't just freely pretend sin never happened and close His eyes to it and still be God. He can't do that. We can do that because we're finite fallen creatures. With God, how can I say it? Every sin has to be punished. Every single bad attitude. Every single corrupt thought. Every single proud moment. Every single idolatrous moment. Every materialistic moment. Every second that I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of that can't just look the other way and pretend it doesn't exist and still be God. This is what Paul means in that 24th verse. Redemption is free in Christ Jesus. It's not just free, it's free in Christ Jesus. God has no redeeming grace to offer outside of Christ Jesus. There's common grace. You, you, you know, atheist plants tomatoes and they'll grow in the soil just like the saint. God does that. He makes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. There is grace manifested to everyone. There is not any redeeming grace outside of Jesus Christ. Point number four, I'm trying to get through this. Paul turns the lens around, focuses now on, on, not on us receiving, but on God the giver, the bestower. He turns the lens around to examine the effect of redemption. If I can put it this way, I don't mean it irreverently. The effect of redemption on God. Look at 25 and 26. Talking about Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show, here's what it shows first of all, from God's side. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. I want to talk about that phrase. And he's going to repeat it. It was to show his righteousness. That's the second time in two verses. What... Jesus is a demonstration of God's righteousness. What does he mean by that? It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, this is God, might be just. There's one effect of the cross. And the justifier. There's the second effect of the cross. So the first thing that, when you see that cross, you think of Christ on that cross, the first thing it reveals is God is holy, God is just. He can never wink at my transgressions. That's the first thing it shows. He's just. The second thing it shows is he justifies guilty people. The key words in those verses are in those time words. Former sins. He passed over former sins in 25. And then there's the present time. That's what the time since Christ so, so the thought here is God, God uh, demonstrates, puts forward, that's Paul's word, he demonstrates his justice. He reveals his justice through Christ's death on the cross. God is seen to be just in his punishment of sin in a way that maybe could have been missed before Jesus came and died on the cross. So that raises the question, okay then, Pastor Don, those words, they're very tricky where it says God had passed over former sins. He needed to demonstrate his justice now because he passed over sins before. That doesn't mean that God didn't judge sinners in the Old Testament. He did. We know God judged sinners before Christ. Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. Noah, eight people saved. The rest are killed in a flood because they're wicked continually, the text says. Sodom and Gomorrah. Pick any Old Testament story you want, bearing out God's wrath against sinners. So so what can possibly mean in those words, verse 25, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And what Paul means is, God had passed over judging sin before Christ. It's not that sinners didn't experience his wrath, but the problem of sin was never dealt with. People may have suffered for their actions. Yes. But what about the sin itself? What was God doing about sin? How was he dealing with it? So what was the plan beyond merely wrapping the knuckles of sinners constantly What was God going to do to restore his creation? How was he going to make things right? Was there nothing more to be done other than punishing sinners over and over and over and leaving them in the same sinful condition? Was this the plan that God had? So the two main thoughts in 25 and 26, you all still with me? Are are these. First, in Christ, in Christ, God deals with sins committed before Christ came in the flesh. It was only because God was going to act decisively, revealing his justice in Jesus Christ. It was only because of that that all those Old Testament sacrifices provided any kind of temporary uh, covering for sin, because Hebrews 10.4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That wasn't going to work. But they were pictures of God revealing his ultimate solution to the problem of sin. And secondly, God's justifying work in Christ is secure and certain for those who partake by faith. This is the point Paul makes in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jewish theology then and now places the time of pronouncement of justification. Whether you make it or not, it places it at the last judgment. Deeds are accounted and weighed and a verdict is passed. Most religions work that way. Paul takes a different track entirely. I hope you see it. It's precious beyond telling. Paul says that in Christ, God has already made his final verdict about my sin. I have faith in Christ. He is not, he is just, he is absolutely just. He is not going to punish my sins on the cross and then punish me at the final judgment for the same sins. This justice that's revealed is a comfort to me because I am in Christ through faith. The future judgment has reached back into the present time and it's found its conclusion in Christ's death and resurrection. And it it makes, it should make Christians loving, forgiving people. Say, you wrong me. Um, really wrong me? What enables me to say there's forgiveness and grace. I don't need to strike back. I don't need to even the scales of universal justice. I can let that go. What enables me to say that? Two things. I have already been forgiven more than I will ever forgive anybody else. Right? Right? I have already been forgiven more than I will ever be asked to forgive anyone else. And God will either take vengeance on whoever has wronged me sometime during his life or whatever that person did to wrong me was already paid for on the cross in the death of Jesus Christ. But it never ever just got overlooked. I don't have to worry about it. But it's not because God isn't going to deal with it. It's just, I don't have to deal with it. And it should make us gracious, loving people. Took too long. Point number six. In all of this plan, boasting is excluded because all are saved not by works but by faith. 27 to 30, and we'll wrap up. So we did make it through the text. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? Well, no, that would make no sense at all. If I can accomplish it by works, then I can boast about it. By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And he means everybody, and he's going to make that clear in the next two verses. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised. that's the Jews. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Same way. So Paul closes this chapter, and he leaves man once again silent before God. It is interesting. in 3:19, in 3:19, Paul said this. He said, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And now, and now the, 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 the mouth is stopped again, but it's it stopped from boasting. The first time it's stopped from making excuses. There are no excuses, you're guilty. But now it's stopped in the sense of boasting. There's nothing to boast about because it's received through faith in Jesus Christ. This second silence is the silence of the redeemed. It's the silence of, Humility—it's the silence of thankfulness. Boasting is excluded because God's deliverance of mankind is one that He produces. Just want to close with with, a, with this thought. You can put your notes away. I uh, I weary with a commonly repeated theme. It comes up in various ways by a lot of contemporary Christian pastors and teachers and writers. And the idea is they reject this whole idea of the wrath of God being poured out on Christ. And they use the phrase, you've heard it, cosmic child abuse. Why does God have to beat up on Jesus in order to forgive me? Um, and they make like God some kind of an evil monster. And Jesus kind of gets in between God and us and goes, no, 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 leave him alone, leave him alone. And I can't tell you how that aggravates me. It aggravates me because it it is so, either it's, it's just playing a game or it's so ignorant of the theology behind redemption. It's the triune God who redeems mankind. It's not one part of the Trinity working against the others. Jesus made this... Jesus, it's it's like he anticipated this objection. He made it abundantly clear. He said, nobody's taking my life from me. Remember? I, I lay it down. He said he was the good shepherd. Remember in John's gospel, he said he was the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The Father sends the Son in love. The Son lays down His life in love. The Holy Spirit comes and regenerates in love. It's the whole triune God on the same page, doing the same thing with the same heart. How dare people say that about our Lord and our Heavenly Father? Sorry, bugs me. It just really bugs me. The church ought to not tolerate that kind of talking about the Trinity. Aren't you glad Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all combining to provide this wonderful gift apart from the works of the law? Nobody can boast. We're all equal. We're all humbled. And we're all so thankful. And everyone said...